0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this
1: message by Pastor Scott Morgan.
0: I'm just curious if you've ever been in a situation where you really doubted God, where you really felt like, how can God be so good, so powerful? and so loving and yet he's not helping me in my crisis. Have you ever ever wrestled with that? Some of us have, some of us haven't, I understand. But there are folks here in this room, especially in a crowd this size where there's been something so devastating, a death in the family, a divorce, uh, betrayal, um, getting laid off, um, a church split. Um, politics didn't go the way you were hoping, friends forgot you, rejected you, Uh, maybe you're getting a a diagnosis from the doctor that just has terrified you and when you think about why doesn't he just flat-out heal me, I don't understand. These are the common experiences of human beings and we need to wrestle with this today. I need to admit that that I'm a little uncomfortable talking about the passage that we're going to look at today because it asks some hard questions. The emotions are very raw, and it almost sounds a little heretical. (laughs) It sounds like something that you're not really supposed to ask these kinds of questions of God. You're just supposed to just, you know, suck it up buttercup and just move on and not worry about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that our human experience is such as that we go through times that are incredibly painful. That's part of human existence. That's part of what defines us as human beings, is that, that suffering. And how do we deal with that suffering, and how do we handle it? Now, we've been looking, for those of you who are our guests, just to kind of get, or if you've been away traveling, just to kind of get everybody up to speed, we've been looking at the book of Psalms in the New Testament. This is. Ancient Israel's great book of, of hymns and songs of worship to God, and, and they are also songs that express prayers, they express questions, they express just doubts and fears, and just all the types of things that you and I here in 21st century America, we wrestle with as well. People 3,000 years ago, when many of these songs were written, they were wrestling with them also. And the thing that's so valuable is that God includes these passages of Scripture, these ancient songs, not because our songs aren't good enough and he wants us to get back to the original, as much as he wants us just to understand that the feelings and the emotions that we wrestle with and deal with, they're, 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 they're part of the human experience. And God wants us to come to him in the middle of our sorrow, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our rejoicing and joy as well, whatever it might be. So we've been talking about songs of the soul, and we've been looking at different psalms in the Bible. Now, I've got to tell you that when we were having a staff meeting uh, several, uh, probably a month and a half ago, And I kind of was coming up with this idea of you know I think maybe we should be looking at the Psalms and talking about this and thinking about it I was mentioning it to Pastor Josh I was mentioning it to Jessica Robinson who was just up here on the platform and I and I said you know I think this would be really good if we would look at these Psalms I think this would be healthy it would be it would be it would help our worship and it would help us just really resonate with God and see who he is and see who we are in in our relationship with him and and Jessica kind of just pipes up as she's want to do and she just kind of pipes up there and she says I got to tell you about Psalm 77. I got to tell you about Psalm 77 because I tell you this is the thing and I'm I'm paraphrasing I'll let her explain it better later but this is what really grabbed me and this is what I needed to hear and this has helped me draw closer to God and be in his presence and see how God is working in my life as well. So we're going to hear from Jessica in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to invite you to take your Bible out, please. And let's turn to Psalm 77 in the book of Psalms. This is on page 488, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles that's located in a slot under the chair in front of you. There's a couple black-covered Bibles there in your row. And this psalm is just, it's, it's asking a question. The, question. the question is simply this, is the psalmist is saying, Who are you, God? <laughs> I thought I knew, but I'm not so sure. Other other authors are saying, you know, has God changed? It looks like God has changed. I mean, think about your experience in mind, whether you're somebody who's exploring the Christian faith or somebody who's been a Christian, a follower of Jesus for a long, long time. You've had people tell you, you know, the Bible tells me so, and this is what God is like. This is what Jesus does, and this is what he is, and this is what he does. And then we have a situation in our lives where it says, uh, I'm not so sure he's like that because my experience was totally different. In fact, it's almost like a cosmic bait and switch. Do you know what I'm talking about in, in advertising? Where there's a circular or some kind of advertisement say come in and you can buy this, this computer or this big, you know, uh, large screen, flat screen TV and it's at this price and they only have one or two in the store because they really want you to go over and buy the other one that's more expensive or cheaper or, you know, less quality. And, and, and they're luring you in with one idea but they want you to buy something else. It's bait and switch. And maybe some of you today are thinking, You know, I was told that God was merciful, caring, kind, and good, but I'm going through suffering, and I'm going through troubles. It seems the exact opposite. Where is he? Did he ignore me? Is he checking out on me? Is he rejecting me? What's what's going on? And I don't understand, and I'm afraid. And I would like us just to dive into this psalm and think about what it's saying here today. Because I think what we're going to see is that God is there and that he does care and that you could be sure of that. But the key is what are you thinking about? Do you realize that what you hope for depends on what you think about? Whether or not you have courage depends on what you think about. Whether or not you experience any kind of victory or confidence in your life depends on what you think about. Any kind of of security and hope depends on what you think about. But the depression you wrestle with also depends on what you think about. And the discouragement and fear and anxiety that you have, that too is grounded in what you think about. Because what you, you are, what you think about. You and I become whatever we meditate on and ponder on and reflect on and this passage is going to constantly go back to this idea of what am I thinking about what's going on in my life it's written by a guy named Asaph now we don't know a whole lot about Asaph But we know that at the time of of David and King Solomon, he was one of the choir leaders at the temple in Jerusalem. He also not only wrote a lot of songs himself, but he also founded a guild, founded a a choral society, so to speak, of people who would write worship songs. And it's possible that Asaph himself did not pin these words, but people in his group, in this guild of choir, uh, choir singers, they were the ones that wrote it. It's possible we don't know exactly when that this was penned during the time of the Babylonian captivity or when the Israelites were about ready to be hauled off into captivity and go go into exile. And and you can just imagine that kind of a context of people being so frightened and so afraid and saying, God, why are you letting Jerusalem be destroyed? Or why are you letting us get us, why do you allow us to be hauled off into captivity? I don't understand any of this. Well, whatever the crisis is, it's not listed here. It's not written in the text of this song. And so I think that that's helpful to you and I today because whatever calamity, whatever crisis you're going through, this song has meaning for you and for me as well. So this is what I'd like to do this morning. Uh, we've, been, we've been reading these songs out loud. We don't know the melody, but we can at least read the lyrics and so that's what we're going to do this morning but we're just gonna read it responsibly today you can stay seated I'll read verse 1 I'd like you to read verse 2 and we'll just alternate until we get down to down the end and we'll read verse 20 together okay I cry aloud to God aloud to God and he will hear me then verse 2 in the day of trouble I seek the Lord and the night, my hands stretched out, wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. So, so I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has the his love forever cease, Christ promised his amen for all time. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah? And then I said, I will be this to the ears I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God of the first wonders. You have made them with the might of the You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning the world. Your earth Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You your people on. like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Thank you, did you notice as we read the word of the Lord here and we give thanks to God for it. But did you notice that as, as we were reading through this, all the different references to nature and, and his own struggles and the burdens that he felt and interwoven with all of that. There's this idea of I remember, I meditate, I contemplate, I consider, I think about. This is just repeated over and over and over because this is one of the underlying themes of this song that, that you and I become what we think about. And we see in the opening nine verses or so that this man is thinking. This person is thinking about his struggle, his calamity, his problems. And it leads to a a great sorrow. And then in verse 10, there's kind of a shift. And he begins to focus his mental attention. He changes his mindset. And he begins to focus instead on history. Now, you and I often think that history doesn't really matter because the past is the past. But truly, history is where we learn and we see that God has acted. And we remember what he has done. And in doing that, we find that there is hope, not despair. If you focus on your circumstances, you will have despair. If you focus on the history of God's actions and his deeds of salvation, you will find hope. You will find deliverance as well. Now notice in the opening part, it says that he's crying to God. And he's crying aloud to God and he's confident that God will listen to him. And yet it doesn't seem like God is listening to him. He's kind of saying, this is I know what the textbook says, but I'm not so sure. I I sometimes wonder about it. The fact that he's crying out aloud to God, that he's seeking the Lord in verse 2, that his hands are outstretched at night and they don't get numb, they don't get weary. The idea... Is that he's crying and he's praying for God to do something, and there's a sense of urgency. He's not just saying a little, now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep type of prayer. He's crying about it, he's shouting. There's an, there's an urgency, there's a, there's a neediness in his voice. It's kind of like we talked about last week, the sense of poverty that, he, that the psalmist in another psalm had of, I'm poor, and I'm needy, and I have nothing. And, and that's kind of what we've got going on here. This man's situation is so desperate that he's crying out. There's a sense of urgency that he's asking God to help. And the thing is, is it says that as he's praying in the middle of the night, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night worrying about something? You ever had that happen? You know what the best thing to do in that moment is? Pray. Yeah, go pray. No, seriously. Don't, not in bed. Go, go up, go to the living room, kneel down by the couch or sit in your easy chair or something and take the time to pray. And, and just pray until you start falling asleep and then go back to bed. <laughs> I'm serious. And that's one way to really take Those worries and anxieties and turn them into prayers in those moments of crisis. Asaph was doing that. But the thing that's interesting in verse 3, it says, when I remember God, I moan. And the word moan there is not just saying like that. It's more of a complaint. There's a sense of being very agitated and very upset. Because he says, I'm praying, and you're not answering. I'm asking you to work, and I don't see any evidence of it. I'm in the middle of this problem. Are you going to come and help me or not? And I don't understand it. In fact, when I think about God, he says, when I meditate, and I think about you, I feel like I want to faint. I'm so overwhelmed, I just want to give up. I'm, I'm exhausted in all of this. And I feel like fainting. Now, I'm grateful that in the body of Christ, God has given us brothers and sisters to help us understand the Word of God, to help explain it to us and help us apply it. Because frankly, part of us learning the Word of God is not just opening commentaries and dictionaries and doing Bible study methods and verse mapping and things like that. As important as those things are, sometimes you can only learn the Scripture when you go through the experience of the Scripture. And that's why it's so important that you and I listen today what Jessica Robinson has to share, what God has taught her about this passage. Now come on up here. And so she she's gonna share some things that God is teaching her, beginning in verse five. And I'm I'm asking every man and woman here just to really give him, you know, give the Lord a teachable heart and hear what the Lord has to say to you and I as we listen to to Jesse.
1: Since I was diagnosed with cancer in December of last year, I have not struggled a whole lot with the why me question. That hasn't really been a big one for me. I felt like I had a good theology of suffering. I understand that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. That because we live in a fallen world, we're all going to experience things in our lives that are broken and hard and difficult times. But my struggle has more been with the mistakes. The delays, the waiting, the not knowing, and the long moments of silence, just waiting for something to change, for something to happen. I'm a type A, plan it all out and get it all done kind of person. To put me in a situation where I am powerless and only God can act is terrifying. I'm used to fixing it all myself. I'm the problem solver and I get things done. My desperation in being completely powerless was seen so evident in this psalm. I identified with that feeling of reaching and grasping out, and and he said in in verse three that his arm is stretched out and he can't get what he needs. If it was in his own power, he he would have done it. He was stretching out. He was reaching for God. When he says in verse four, "You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak." I identified with that so greatly. There were moments where I couldn't pray. All I could say over and over again was, I can't do this without you, Lord. I can't do this without you. I didn't even know what to ask for. That's why it was such a comfort to me when many of you said, I'm praying for you. I'm like, good, someone is. (laughs) Because I couldn't do it myself. I wasn't sure what to say, and I I would lay awake at night and try to say something. And I think I I, I had it worse than, than the writer of this psalm because I have Google so I was googling and you know you're not supposed to do this right everyone knows this but I've pretty sure we've all done it too right I'm up at night and, and I'm worried and instead of praying because I don't know what to say I'm googling the side effects of anesthesia or anything that could go wrong during surgery just to make sure I'm prepared right so I can't sleep and I'm awfulizing my mind is focused on the wrong things I think it, Asaph or whoever was writing this psalm was doing the same thing. He was looking back at his situation and he was so overwhelmed by it. And he begins to consider the days of old, the years long ago. In verse 6 he says, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. I don't know if he's looking back to better days, if he's looking at times when he knew his place, where life seemed certain, where God seemed like he knew what God was up to, if he was looking back to days of joy, if he's looking forward to what's coming and not knowing what God is doing, he's looking through these questions and and he's beginning to get to the point where he is asking hard questions. These are really deep questions. There's no trite Christian answer to these. These are the the questions that plague us, that do keep us up at night. And he begins to look through these, and they're almost hard to read. Unless you've gone through something like this, it almost seems heretical. But if you have, you know that deep inside of our soul, there comes this moment when we start to question everything we ever knew. He says, Will the Lord spurn forever? and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? This is a huge question, because the Bible tells us that God is love. That's his very nature. If his love has stopped, then what's left? What's left for us if there is no love, if God's love is gone, or his promises at an end? Has he stopped keeping his promises? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in his anger, shut up his compassion? It was my desire to do cancer well, (laughs) of course. I have to make sure I do my best at everything. By that, I meant that I didn't want to lose my faith. I wanted my faith to be strong, and I wanted what I had to go through to glorify God. So I was unprepared a little bit for this anxiety that came and these endless days with these questions that rocked me a little bit. Was God still being gracious? If God wasn't stepping in, what was next? What do we do when God is the only person who can change our circumstances and he doesn't? And what do we do when God doesn't meet our expectations? You see, I've known God, I've known him all my life. I was raised in church. I don't remember a moment when I didn't know about God's love and that God cared about me and that he had a plan for my life. I had an interesting childhood in that I, I grew up in church. I grew up with with uh, parents and grandparents who took me to church, and I remember both of um, t- two of my grandparents instilled such a great faith in God in me at a very young age. My grandfather Haynes was a boys' Sunday school teacher, and he used to call me when he got his curriculum each quarter, and I would go over and I would literally sit at his feet as he would read through the stories that he was going to tell in the next few weeks of of Sunday school, and I would trim out his flannel graph while he was reading. That shows you how old I am, that I remember flannel graph. And I was cutting all them out, and I would listen to the stories, and he would say, oh, we're going to talk about Joseph. Oh, he, was such, he had such a good story. God rescued him from prison and, and elevated him to this great position, and he was able to save the lives of so many people. And he would say, oh, we're going to study Jesus. He walked on water. This one time he showed his power by calming the storm. And I heard about a God that was powerful and that acted when we needed him. And then I learned something else about God from my my grandmother, Fair. She taught me that God was personal, that I could know him and that he would speak to me and that I could feel and experience his love She used to have me play on her organ and sing to her and she always wanted to hear what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. And as I would play, she would close her eyes and put her head up and she would hum along with me and it felt like God was in the room and I knew that he loved me. And so I faced that love and that power of God all my life, I had known it. My expectation was that if he was going to allow me to have cancer, at least he'd clear the path, right? We'd have a successful surgery, we'd get good pathology, things would go smoothly, we would conquer it, and he would get the glory, and I'd go back to my life. But that's not what happened, no, that was not at all what happened. So one Monday afternoon in late April, I had about all I could bear, and I was driven to my knees into this psalm that I had just read a day or two earlier, and I prayed over this and I began to cry. My Bible is stained with tears and mascara, and I cried so long that my headache by the time I was finished. What is left when we begin to ask, is God really who I thought he was? If he can stop the pain and he doesn't, what is left for me? And I think that's where our psalmist was here. This next verse, verse 10, is a, um, a little uh, thorny theologically, so I'm going to defer over here to our theologian in residence to uh, talk us through that one.
0: Not sure who you're talking about, but anyway. <laughs> If you take verse 10 and you read it there in our English Standard Version, it just simply says this, then I said, kind of sounds like a shift, then I said, I will appeal to this to the ears of the right hand of the most high. But you'll notice that there's a little footnote, and if you look at the bottom of the page, At the footnote, verse uh, footnote two, this is my grief as an alternate translation. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Some of the other translations, like the New American Standard version of the Bible, agree with the footnote at the bottom of the page. Other translations follow what the ESV says in verse 10. And the reason why, it's not that there's a mistake, it's just simply we don't know enough about ancient Hebrew to be able to translate accurately what the words and the grammar of that sentence. It's just, it's a little hard. And so I honestly don't know for sure what's the proper translation. We could go with either one of those. I don't think you're making a mistake if you do that. Um, There are those who say, well, my version of the Bible is inspired, so that settles it. You can't say that, that's not true. It is inspired in a sense that the the manuscripts that we have are accurate and we do our best job that we can in translating them into English language today so that we can understand it as well. If you take it the way it says in verse 10 Then what he's simply saying is I'm making a shift here. I was focusing on all my sorrow. I was focusing on my calamity I was awfulizing like Jessica just described. I was doing that but you know what? I made a change and I've said I'm going to appeal to the ears of the right hand of the most, God, most high God. The most high God is, is the one who is the supreme ruler over the entire universe. And I'm appealing to the fact, I'm gonna take my case to him that he is the one who's in charge and I know his right hand, which is symbolic of his great power, I know he's gonna come through and deliver me. That's a good thing. And in verse 11, you can see how he continues to focus on God delivering him. If you take verse 10 and instead of appeal, you put the word grief in and you think of the right hand of God either falling short or being forgetful or not able or has changed in some way. If you take it that way, which is also a possible accurate translation. If you take it that way, then verse 10 is simply a summary of everything that the psalmist was saying in verses 1 through, through 9. And he's kind of wrapping it up and making a conclusion of saying, I am grieving over the fact that it looks like the Most High God, the ruler of the universe, the person that, like your grandfathers taught you, Jessica, you're, is so powerful and so good and so great and so personal and caring that that God is now ignoring me. And I don't understand it. I don't understand why it is. The translation difference isn't really a big deal because what we notice in verse 10 and following is there's a definite shift in what God is doing what the psalmist is doing in his relationship with God. He's relying on God and depending on God to come through and help him. And we're going to see how he does that in verses eleven through fifteen, and Jesse's gonna help us with that.
1: After my long ugly cry. I sat in the silence for a little while, and then I dug out an older journal with the list of the Hebrew names of God, and I had, I had taught this years ago. It's one of the problems of being a teacher and teaching God's word. You, uh, you have to preach to yourself sometimes. <laughs> you have to live out what you've been telling the, everyone else. And so I got out those names, and I began to pray through them. I did it several times. I praise God for how I had seen him exhibit those parts of his character in my life. And before long, I realized I was asking the wrong question. You see, the answer to the question is God, who I think he is, will always be no. We don't know God. We don't fully understand him. God is beyond our expectations at, their, at one point our expectations aren't enough because he always delights in surprising us and exceeding our expectations but then in another part our expectations are too small because we box him in and we expect him to display his character in ways in which we would like to see and so we possibly cannot answer that question any other way than no God is not exactly who I think he is. He's much bigger. So the question is really something very different. There's always more to God than we can grasp. The real question we should be asking is, is God who he says he is? Is he reliable? Is he who he says he is? It's never, is it who I was expecting? But is he who he says he is? And I think that the psalmist realized this too. Because in verse 11, he begins to talk about God. And he never again goes back to himself. For the rest of this psalm, you never see the word I. The rest of the psalm is about God. In verse 11, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. If we're going to trust him if we're going to lay our life in his hands, then we need to really to know that he really is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. And that's why this shift is incredibly important, turning to the character of God. When, when the psalmist talks about redeeming your people, he's doing something so important. He is reminding them of their history. He's talking specifically about the Exodus when God brought all of the Israelites out of Egypt and took them to their promised land. But really what he's doing is he's invoking even further back when he talks about the covenant that God made with Abraham. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will give you your own land. And through you, every family on the earth will be blessed. That was the covenant that God made with Abraham way back in Genesis. And the psalmist is reminding that God kept that that part of that covenant that said, I will give you a land. I will make you a great nation and I will give you your land. And he's reminding himself and everyone who would sing this psalm that God kept that promise, that God does what he says he will do. And the interesting thing is, is that we have even more uh, insight than he did because we know that God kept all that promise. That several hundred years later Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. That covenant that God made with Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus and we see it. Imagine the people hearing this psalm, if, if it truly was happening during the beginning or the early parts of the Babylonian captivity, maybe just as they were ready to be taken off or while they were in captivity, reminding them that God rescued us once before, and he can do it again because he keeps his promises, and he is the one who will fulfill what he says. There's a little bit of a a reminder here in verse 16. He says, with your arm you redeemed your people. And it it reminds me of the beginning of the psalm where the psalmist is just reaching and reaching and reaching and his arm is ineffective. But God's arm is not. His arm is powerful. He is looking back to remind himself that God keeps his promises. And I don't think they came about quite the way Asaph was expecting. I don't think God's going to come the way we're expecting to. But we have a rich history of God keeping his promises. Not just in the Bible, but in our own lives. Where has God answered prayer for us? How has God worked in our situations? When has he provided just the rescue at just the right time? When have we seen him do strong and powerful things at work amongst us? We have that history as well to look back to. And we know, because we've seen it, that God can do everything he says he can do. After praying through that list of God's names a few times that day, a very quiet kind of peace came over me. It was not a euphoric kind of joy. Everything's going to be great from here on out. I have not had that kind of peace. It's a confidence that God clearly had knowledge and power that I did not and that I was safe in his hands. And even though I've faced worse news since that day, (laughs) I've been able to keep this confidence. And I've done it because I remind myself each day of who God says he is. And that he's reliable and that I can trust him. And I remind myself of his character daily because we can trust both parts of God, his power and his might. And we can trust his love and his faithfulness to work in his circumstances with his people and keep his promises. That's who he is. And that's who he always is. There's some interesting imagery in this next part where he talks more about this idea of the redemption and we see a big picture of God and Pastor Scott's going to take over for that.
0: So when we get to verse 16... There's an even further shift because as the psalmist is remembering and pondering and rehearsing the history of the deliverance of the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, he, he begins to expand it even further in verse 16. And he adds some details that at first, when you compare to what occurred in Exodus chapter 15 and chapter 14, you don't necessarily see all those details. And you're kind of wondering, is he just embellishing it, making the story a little more exciting or what's the purpose of all this? Because what he does is he says, when I think about the, the Exodus, when I think about the deliverance, to me, it was like this mighty thunderstorm that just came rolling across the desert and just disrupted everything. And it's it's a picture of, of God, the divine warrior, showing up, doing battle for his people, defending them, fighting against their oppressors and setting them free. In verse 16, it reads: When the water saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The Israelites They were not a seafaring people, they did that some during the days of Solomon, but they were not because they were an inland nation, they did not go out to sea that often, and the deep was terrifying. When they thought about the ocean, they just thought about how deep it was. And it was a very terrifying thing. And all kinds of creatures and monsters lived there. Chaos was there. And it was a very frightening thing. You and I say the ocean, we call it, you know, the high seas. But for the Israelite, they referred to it as the deep, a place of great chaos and confusion. And yet, the psalmist Asaph, as he writes this, he says, the waters, the ocean, the sea... All those depths, they were terrified of you. They trembled before you. They were frightened of you. They understood that you were the master, the owner, the Lord, the sovereign over the seas. The thing that we're most afraid of, it was terrified of you. The clouds poured out water, verse 17 says. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. An allusion, obviously, to to lightning. They're like God's arrows. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world and the earth trembled and shook. This, This majestic scene of God's glory coming and roaring over the desert as the Israelites were trapped there beside the Red Sea, if you remember the geography at all, they had left Egypt and headed south and to the east, and they had come up, you know, nearly two million people. They're there on the shore of the, of the Red Sea, and they're trying to figure out how are they going to get across. And there're mountains to the south, and there're mountains to the north, and the Egyptian army is pressing down upon them to the rear. They're trapped. They're going to be slaughtered by the world's greatest superpower of that time. Here they are, this this newborn nation of people. They don't have an army, they don't have soldiers, they don't have weaponry to defend themselves, and they're trapped by by the Egyptians, their slave masters. How are they going to be set free? God, the divine warrior, the great warrior. Lord of the ocean, Lord of the storm. He comes to their defense. He comes to rescue them. I kind of wrestled as I was thinking about this passage. You know, I don't remember the thunderstorm part of the cross in the Red Sea. I'm not, you know, that sounds like something You know, Cecil B. DeMille or, you know, the Ten Commandments or something like that. I'm waiting for Charleston Heston to show up or something like that and just kind of, you know, it sounds like a Hollywood embellishment a little bit. But you could look at it and you could say, well, you know, the writer, Asaph, he's looking at the ten plagues that set, you know, that God used to punish Egypt. And, you know, yeah, there was lightning and hail and storms there and the frogs and the water turned to blood and all this, you know, judgment. And maybe he's including even what would happen later when they went to Mount Sinai and the earth, you know, the mountains shook and there was smoke and fire and thunder. And he, maybe he's just kind of rolling that all together in one package, one story, that God used all this storm and quaking and, and uh, meteorological violence to kind of just show his people that he's, that he's powerful and that he's the deliverer who's come to their rescue, that we would have a very clear vision of who he really is. It's possible that Asaph was even borrowing some of the understanding of the gods and goddesses from the, the Canaanites because they believed that Baal was the storm god. And, you know, maybe he's just kind of taking some of that imagery and plying it. Not, not because he believes Baal is god. He doesn't. But in a sense to mock Baal and say, you know, the creator god... The God of the storm, the God of the lightning, the God of the hail, the God of the earthquake and fire and thunder and lightning. That God, he's the creator God. He's the God of Israel. The one who's master and Lord over the storm. But I think there's something else going on here. I think it's something for you and I that we need to grab hold of. And remember, and I'll share that with you in just a moment. It just simply says in verse 19, your way, this is what Asaph writes as he remembers. The singers that pin this, this is what they're remembering. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Isn't it interesting that in the story of the Exodus, when God brought the children of Israel to the shore of the Red Sea with the mountains on either side and the enemy army breathing down upon them, God didn't say, I'm going to build you a bridge real quick and you're going to walk over. I'm, not going, to, I'm going to send all these ferry boats over and they're going to take you across. I'm going to, you know, you need to surrender to the Egyptians. None of those options that we would be tempted with to go around or go over or give in to None of those are the options that God has for the children of Israel in that moment. No, what does he do? He uses that mighty wind and it blows in such a way that the waters of the Red Sea actually divide and the ground dries. The seabed dries. And this 2,000, 2 million member, excuse me, member nation marches across. God has led his people through the water. I think Asaph would be saying to you and I today, whatever your storm, whatever your Red Sea, whatever your trial, whatever your calamity, that cancer diagnosis, that, that broken marriage that you're, you're desperate to repair, that being laid off from work, the financial struggle that you're going through, the, the, the persecution you're encountering, it's not by running away from it. It's not by going around it. It's by going through it. And he would say, I'm going with you through it. But there's this little thing at the end of verse 19. Yet your footprints were unseen. And that's what's so hard. Is that often when God is with us and God is working in our situation, we don't see him. And we wonder if he's really there. Now, maybe what he's talking about is well, you know, the Israelites, they got across. And then the waters came crashing back in and of course that destroyed the the Egyptians that were in hot pursuit. They were drowned in the flood waters there of the Red Sea coming back into place. But all the footprints got washed away. But maybe there were no footprints there at all because God didn't leave any. And yet God was clearly leading the people of Israel through the sea. In fact... His goal ultimately was not just to rescue them, but to guide them to the promised land. And that's why he says in verse 20, you lead your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, two brothers, the great deliverer and his brother who was the first high priest. Moses, the great leader. Aaron, the one who who prayed and interceded for the people and led them in worship. God used these chosen men to lead his people through the water into the promised land and to their new home. God uses the people around us to help us when we go through our trials as well. Why does he have this thunderstorm? What is he trying to say here? I mean, we could wrestle with this whole passage and say, you know what, that was really good. I'm glad Asaph found a comfort in that, but that was... 3500 years ago that took place what relevance does that have for me today and this medical bill that I have to pay and I can't and this diagnosis that I received and these divorce papers that I've received and this layoff notice what how will it help me in the middle of that and I think the reason why the the passage refers to the storm it's to remind us that there's someone greater than Moses and greater than Aaron, who is God in the flesh, who was sleeping on the boat and in the middle of the storm was awakened by his disciples when they said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stood up and says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And it says it became an instant calm. And there's one greater than Moses and greater than Aaron who's come. And when he died on the cross, it said the ground shook and the veil of the temple tore in two and the tombs were open and many godly people came out. And when he himself rose from the dead, there was an earthquake and he is alive. You don't see the footprints of Jesus today, but he's the one who, when he rose from the dead, said very clearly to his disciples, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. I am with you. My friends, we would say to you today that when you think about the trials and the struggles that you're going through and you're wondering, where is God? Who are you? It looks like you've changed. I'm not sure you really care about me. I think you've abandoned me. In that moment of crisis, you have a choice about what you're going to think on. You have a choice about how you're going to frame your mind what you're going to set your thinking upon. You can choose to think about your circumstances, and that will always lead you to despair because you don't see the footprints. You don't see what God is doing in your life. I don't either. And in that moment, it's easy to think that God is not there and he does not care or he doesn't have the power to deliver us. But that's not true. We look at the cross and we see the empty cross and the empty tomb and we recognize that Christ defeated through his death and resurrection, he defeated our greatest enemies, far worse than the Egyptian army, far worse than a cancer diagnosis, far worse than divorce, far worse than being laid off, far worse than any persecution you and I could ever encounter experience. He conquered our sin, our guilt, our shame. He conquered death. He conquered the devil. He defeated our greatest enemies. And he is victorious. The mighty God, the divine warrior who went to the cross and fought with sin, death, and the devil and defeated it through his death and through his resurrection. And yes, you don't see his footprints. But you hear his promise. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The writer of Hebrews expounds on that even further in chapter 13 where he says, you know, let your, let your way of life be without coveting. Be content with the things you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what people do to me. You don't have to be afraid. Because there's a God who loves you, who created you, who sent his son to save you. And we see, you can see the foreshadowing of Jesus here in this storm. Because he's the God of the storm, Lord over the storm. Who is delivering his people through the flood and leading them into his truth and his peace. Whether or not you have hope depends on what you think about Whether or not you have courage depends on what you think about. Whether or not you have peace depends on what you think about. Whether or not you experience victory in your life depends on what you think about. You are what you think about. If you focus only on the circumstances, it will lead you to despair, confusion, anxiety. But if you focus on God and that he's at work, and you remember him and his faithfulness, you will always have his peace, his confidence, his victory, his strength, his courage to move forward. We're going to conclude our service today by looking at the names of God as found in the Hebrew scriptures. And I've asked Jessie if she would just lead us in reading that. You received a flyer, as you came in today. Hopefully you did. And if you didn't get one today, there'll be some of these back at the info desk and you can pick one up. You can pick an extra copy up if you want to share it with somebody else as well. But uh, listen carefully as we think about who God is as we reflect on his names and remember.
1: This is the list I've been praying, I wanted you to have it, I encourage you to pray through it yourself when you go home from here, in the days and weeks ahead, I'm going to lead you in this, so let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for all that you are. You are Yahweh, Lord Jehovah, the self-existent one. You are beyond our understanding and the one who holds everything together. You are Elohim, mighty God, strong and prominent one, and you will be strong for us. You will be our strength when we have none left. You will be our mighty God in our weakness and our frailty. You are Rishan Vacharon, the first and the last. You will be there before trouble comes our way, and you will be there when it slips away into a glorious new day. Thank you for the glimpses of hope you give us in the middle of trouble that reminds us that a good end is coming. You are Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, master of all, even our circumstances. Your will prevails over everyone and everything, it all bows to you. You are El Hakadosh, the holy God who uses our circumstances to help us choose holy living. The difficulties we face are a refining fire where you burn away all that is not of you. You are Emmanuel, the God with us. You are ever near and present in our lives. There is nothing we go through alone. You are closer than our breath. You are Rav Hasid, abounding in love. Your love never fails, never gives up, never moves on. Our circumstances will not change this. Our choices will not change this. Our sin cannot change this. Your steadfast love is guaranteed. You are rakum vakanun, merciful and gracious. You will redeem our circumstances, even when our sin is to blame. Your forgiveness never runs out, and your mercy is fresh for each new day. You are emet elohim emet, faithful and true, and you will be faithful to walk beside us every step of the way. Your faithfulness means you are who you say you are, and you do what you say you will do. You are Higdil Tushaya, excellent in wisdom, and you will provide just the wisdom we need to know the next step. You will give it generously to us when we ask. You are Rab Kosh, mighty power, and your power will work miracles in our situations in your own perfect time. Your might is beyond compare, and your power is manifest at just the right moment. You are Yahweh Bori, Lord Creator, and you will create something beautiful out of the biggest messes we can make. We praise you for your creativity in bringing good things from bad things. You are El Fela, the God who works wonders. We will open our eyes and wait with expectation to see what wonders you will work when hope seems lost. Give us eyes to see your wonders, dear God. You are Yahweh Rophi, Lord healer. He will bind up all our wounds and meet us at our most broken. Thank you that you do not merely concern yourself with physical healing, but in healing the wounds of our hearts and our minds as well. You are El Shaddai, almighty God. Your power knows no end, so we will not despair. When our strength is gone, yours hasn't even broken a sweat. Thank you that our weakness isn't a hindrance to your work in us. You are Melech Yahweh Sabaat, the Lord of Hosts, and you have your angels to watch over us and do your bidding for our protection. Nothing comes to us but what you allow. You are Mari Melech, the King of Kings. No one is higher, and everyone and everything bows to your will. Your will will always prevail. You are Shafet Sadiq, righteous judge, and you will bring justice for the hurting and the overlooked. We praise you for noticing the rejections and hurts and griefs, the cancers, the illness, and the loss. One day you will make everything right. You are El HaKhavad, the God of glory, and our circumstances will bring more glory to your name. This is our prayer, Lord. May all we go through be purposeful and bring you glory. You are Or Olam, the everlasting light. You will be a light for our path on the darkest nights. Your light shines bright when hope is dim. You are Elgadol Venora, the great and awesome God. Your greatness will do an awesome work with our lives. Your greatness will be evident through our circumstances. You are Elohi Haladi, the God of my praise. You are worthy of all the praise and worship we can give even in our most painful days. Give us a heart of praise, dear God. You are El-Rohi, God sees me, and you will notice our pain and our loss and our brokenness. You know our hearts and you see every tear that falls. You are Avi, father, our dear loving father who watches over us with tender love and affection. You are the perfect father who is always good you are Go-Ali, my redeemer, and you redeem everything, even the pain we think will never end. You bring meaning to our darkest nights and redeem them for good. You are Elohi's story, my God, my rock. You will be a rock of support when we grow weary. Your strength will be our joy and our song. You are Yahweh Ra, the Lord, my shepherd. You guide us and provide for us on every path you take us. May we know your voice and follow after you. We thank you for all that you are and for all that you do. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.